you uh, may have noticed in your bulletin, we're going to be taking a brief break from the series in Genesis this morning to turn to another book of Scripture, to the letter to the Hebrews. And there to chapter 11, I invite your attention. Hebrews chapter 11, we'll be picking up at verse 32. Hebrews 11, verse 32. Many, uh, many people are home in their beds this morning in our community with hangovers from yesterday's activities and festivities. It was, of course, St. Patrick's Day yesterday, as it is every 17th of March. Alas, that holiday has become little more than another excuse to get drunk and rowdy. And St. Patrick has himself completely disappeared from view. Even those things that are said about him, those things that are spread, those tales that are told about driving snakes out of Ireland, which, uh, by the way, didn't exist. A document predating Patrick says that there were no snakes in Ireland. Uh, Or about contests unto death with Druid priests. Or even using the shamrock to uh, teach the doctrine of the Trinity to the Irish. I say those things don't even come close to the genuine Patrick. Now as uh, Protestants, I fear we haven't really concerned ourselves at all with getting behind all of this because we have, if only subconsciously, thought of Patrick as just another in the string of canonized Roman Catholic saints who had little to do with the teaching of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Even our prayer last week anticipating St. Patrick's Day sent many of you to asking who this Patrick truly was. It sent me to do the same this week, and and I've devoured a wonderful biography this week of Patrick. And What I found confirmed that what little I had read about Patrick... Um, uh, about what I, what I had read about Patrick was true, that there is in fact very little in Patrick's writing or his theology or his approach to ministry that is distinctively Roman Catholic. He has uh, properly been described as an evangelical Catholic Christian, only in the wider sense of the word Catholic, the small c Catholic and uh, that he is indeed a true Christian hero, I've been reminded this week. You're probably wondering why we would take this morning to, and especially the time of the sermon, uh, to consider this saint. And truly that's what he was, a, a saint in the fullest sense of that word. I know that this is a very different approach uh, from what we usually take, making our way through books of the Bible verse by verse, and I assure you that we will return to Genesis again next week, the Lord willing. But there are also times when the Lord's providence allows, sometimes even requires, that a minister directly address one matter or another. And what is more, it seems plain that a sermon like this falls right in line with the Bible's own exhortations to consider the faith of the saints who have gone before us, the cloud of witnesses, as the scripture calls them, and to imitate their own faithfulness in our own lives. 
Patrick, I think you will agree, must be among that cloud of witnesses for every one of us. So to Hebrews 11, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, open your word to us, we pray. Teach us to obey your commandments, even this one, to consider the faith of those who have gone before. Teach us from the life of your servant Patrick that we may learn from watching a faithful servant of yours to live according to your truth as well. Stir us, Father, from the complacency that once marked his life to the activity and the obedience that came to mark his life by your, obe- by your grace in his heart and in his work. We pray these things for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen. This is the famous chapter we call the Hall of Faith. The writer of Hebrews has presented the congregation with a list, one after another, of biblical saints who must serve as inspiration and exemplars for their own and for our own faith. But now he takes a turn, interestingly, in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samson, uh, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, Afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, They should not be made perfect. Now what we have here is the Bible's own warrant for what we are doing this morning. The great heroes of the Christian faith, according to the Bible itself, are not limited to the Bible alone. Concurrent with the biblical record, and even following it, God in His sovereign providence has provided us with any number of examples of faithful Christians who have been obedient even to the point of shedding their own blood, even unto death. One of those faithful examples must be Patrick. St. Patrick, or Patricius, as he was known in the Latin of his day, was a nobleman by birth. His very name means noble of the Patrician class, the group who had ruled Rome ever since Romulus and Remus legendarily founded the city a thousand years earlier. Born in Britain in the late 4th century, at a time when that island was under the rule of the Roman Empire, 
He was, according to his own words, the son of a deacon of the church and grandson of a priest. His was, as you may well have already imagined, his family was a well-to-do British family in the closing years of the 4th century, the later 300s. They had a home in town. They also had a country villa, which tells you something about their wealth. (coughs) Patrick lived a privileged life as a young man. He had started down the path of an excellent education until everything was abruptly turned upside down in the darkness of one terrible night. As the 15-year-old boy lay asleep in his family's villa, of a sudden Irish raiders who had come silently across the Irish Sea from that island next to Britain fell upon the family villa. His parents apparently were not at home. Before he could fully awake or realize what was happening, he was thrown to the floor and bound in irons and chains. Brought to where the captives were judged before being loaded on the boats for their fitness, for their usefulness, for their value as slaves, he stood and watched in horror as those who were either too old or too young Old men and infants, friends and relatives, were brutally slain there on the shore to make room in the ships for those who would fetch a better price on the slave market back in Ireland. The journey across the Irish Sea could only have taken a day or two, depending on the destination, probably an island or peninsula on Ireland's east coast. And there, bound at intervals of three feet on iron chains, he and the others were brought to the slave market to be sold. For six years, Patrick served his master in the distant northwest of Ireland, the edge of the world, as he would later describe it. Every day for six years, rain or shine, summer or winter, he tended his master's sheep. But it was precisely during that terrible time that Patrick drew near to God. Or better, we should say, God drew near to him. He remembered what he had heard as a child, the voice of his minister, who pleaded with and commanded the congregation to take the Christian life with full seriousness, much as your own does today, and how he had been utterly indifferent to his pastor's instruction. Now he began to pray and to live as a Christian. In his own words, Patrick wrote later, God used the time to shape and mold me into something better. He made me into what I am now, someone very different from what I once was, someone who can care about others and work to help them. 
Before I was a slave, I didn't even care about myself. Then came the bold escape, a long, long trek on foot across the terribly hostile terrain to say nothing of the hostile tribes of Ireland until he reached the coast opposite England, uh, rather Britain, where he asked a ship's captain if he could join the ship's crew. Spotting him, no doubt, for what he was, a runaway slave, and wanting nothing to do with those kind of complications, the captain said, forget about it, you're not going with us. Now what was he going to do? He turned, Patrick did, and immediately with prayer started making his way, looking for a place to hide so that he wouldn't be arrested when some of the sailors from that same ship called out to him and offered him to take him back to the captain, which they did. Still in a surly mood, the captain offered Patrick a position on the crew. Some adventures after that took place, and Patrick finally arrived back home, where his family received him with delight. So after many years, wrote Patrick, I finally returned home to my family in Britain. They took me in their long-lost son and begged me earnestly that after all I had been through, I would never leave them again. He would probably have happily obliged them. But then came a most remarkable call to ministry, almost like Paul's Macedonian calling. In the Bible, Patrick heard in a dream Irish voices calling to him, Holy Boy, a derogatory name that he had uh, picked up as a slave in Ireland that had been given to him by the Irish. Holy Boy, come here and walk among us. It was all that he needed. Patrick's love for Christ had become love for his enemies. Even those who had so brutally mistreated him, even the savage Irish, needed the Savior. And so Patrick took some time to prepare for gospel ministry in that place. We can imagine how difficult it must have been. Not only were the Irish brutal, but they were also thoroughly pagan. Patrick's ministry would be received in Ireland as a threat by many, especially the Druids. Before he even left, many, many people, even in his own family, no doubt, pleaded him to stay, tried to talk him out of going to that place where he had been so mistreated and now could certainly be enslaved again or worse. Their warnings, many of them came true. Patrick's life in Ireland was hard to say the least. He was beaten several times to within an inch of his life. He suffered the opposition of the Druids who found his religion a threat to their own authority among the people. Just making his way across the boundaries of the, of the dozens of hostile tribal territories was to take his own life in his hands. 
he was even enslaved again for a short time. But it was Patrick's steady conviction, as he said, I came to Ireland to preach the good news. And I have been... I have had many hard times, even to the point of being enslaved again, but I traded my free birth for the good of others. Over the years of Patrick's ministry, he discipled and ordained Irish priests. He founded many, many churches and baptized thousands upon thousands of Christians. Other missionaries had come to Ireland, others would come as well, but none would leave the mark of God on that place, on that people, like Patrick did through the faithful proclamation of the gospel in its purity and in its power, and that in the teeth of every manner of affliction and opposition and trial. I commend the study of Patrick's life to any one of you who would be moved to faithfulness in the task to which God has called every single one of you. The task of spreading the gospel to every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. Which brings me to the application of all of this. Christians, Patrick was a great missionary. He was an exemplary ambassador for Christ. But it is not for his own sake that I bring him to your attention today. It is for yours. By exemplary, I mean this, that we, you and I, should imitate his faith ourselves, as the Bible tells us to do. We are all under this same calling. You may not have had a dream of the Irish or of the Egyptians or Africans or Asians calling you to come and walk among them, nor am I saying that every one of us here in this sanctuary must take up and move to the foreign mission field. But that does not remove from any of us the responsibility and the high privilege that we have of working to fulfill the great commission that Jesus himself has laid upon every one of us to make disciples of all nations. I tell you, I am proud in the godly sense of that word, I hope. I am happy to pastor a church that makes world missions a priority. We have over the years slowly, slowly given missions more of a priority in the church budget. We have made prayer for missionaries a priority in our worship, even this morning, but especially in our prayer meeting, the powerhouse of our church. We've had many missionaries come and challenge us to obedience in this, and many of you support missionaries through the church by designated gifts. It thrills me to say that we are in a denomination, the PCA, a denomination, I say, with one of the highest per capita world mission forces in all 
of American evangelicalism. Yet I fear, judging from my own heart, that our passion for world missions is not what we know it should be and not even what we want it to be. I was moved this week by the combination of Patrick's example and then an exhortation from John Piper, pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis this week in his book, his plea, as he calls it, to pastors for radical ministry. What is it that will feed our passion for world missions? What will make of us, of this congregation of Christ Presbyterian Church, a more faithful force, a more faithful church, more obedient, more enthusiastic in this area of world missions? Well, surely one of those things will be to remember the most glorious story in all of world history, the spread of Christianity through the blood and the tears, the sweat and the joy of world missions. This is why I am so often at pains from this pulpit to remind you, dear flock, about the John Paytons and the David Livingstons and the Amy Carmichaels, the Jim Elliots and the William Careys, the Irenaeuses, and yes, the Patricks of church history and the apostles before them, who out of fidelity to their God and ours, willingly left the comforts of hearth and home to deliver the gospel to peoples who in many cases return hostility for their love and poured out their blood as a reward for their sacrifice. I have three questions for you. Three questions, and in answering those questions, we will find application for ourselves in this matter of world evangelization. First is this. What is it that has driven these men and women from the days of Jesus until now to go and make disciples of the nations? And what will kindle a fire in our own hearts and lives for the same? The answer is quite simple. It is a passion for the glory and preeminence of Christ. It's a passion for the glory and the preeminence of Christ. Now, we heard about that last week, about the scepter that would not pass from Judah's tribe until today even, where we're in the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, holds that scepter still. Patrick made it his own conviction, too. World missions is about seeing God's kingdom proclaimed in all the earth. It's about seeing the world come into submission to God and to His Christ. Over and again, 
in the scripture. This is God's expressed purpose for what he does, that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth, as Paul writes in Romans. Hardly could our part, brothers and sisters, be captured better in this whole matter of world missions than it is in Isaiah 12, verse 4. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. God, as John Piper is fond of saying, God loves his glory. God loves his glory. God is passionately committed to his fame. This is his highest priority, that he be known and admired and trusted and enjoyed as the infinitely glorious God. This is the good news of the kingdom. This is the goal of missions, as Paul says in Romans, that the nations might glorify his mercy. That being God's priority, brothers and sisters, that he be known and worshipped in all the earth, that must be our priority as well. A second question Why were they so confident as they proclaimed the gospel? Why were they so confident? And what must be our confidence as we engage ourselves in world missions? Simply this. God's own promise to do it. And this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said, will be Proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus was not tossing around slogans here for the team, sort of, sort of uh, lobbing some truisms at us to, to sort of cheer us on. That is his promise. And that is our confidence. Just as it was Patrick's confidence in Ireland. Often, often, Patrick came back to this same passage. In fact, Patrick, interestingly, he fully expected that that promise was literally coming to fruition in his own ministry. Ireland, in the thinking of his day, was the end of the earth. Not not literally, of course, like you'd fall off the edge of the earth, but that it was, in their minds, the limit of, of the habitable places of the earth. Patrick was self-conscious about this, that his ministry was ushering in the coming of Christ. He wrote this to the British bishops. God heard my prayers so that I, that I, foolish though I am. We could spend the rest of the morning talking about the humility that is fitting for world missions. It, 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 it penetrates Patrick's works. Foolish though I am, might dare to undertake such a holy and wonderful mission in these last days that I, 
in my own way. It might be like those God said would come to preach and be witness to the good news to all non-believers before the end of the world. Patrick knew and had the confidence that what he was doing was a part of a definite plan of God, the work that was sure to be accomplished. Remember Jesus' promise, I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. What that means for you today brothers and sisters in the Lord, is that if you are disobedient, if you are not engaged in some way today in world missions and global evangelization, whether by going or by sending, it is not that God's kingdom is going to suffer without you. It's not. God's cause will not lose. You will. John Piper again. His triumph is never in question. Only our participation in it. Or our incalculable loss. We can be drunk with private concerns and indifferent to the great enterprise of world evangelization. But God will simply pass over us and do his great work while we shrivel up in our little land of comfort. Take confidence, Christians. God's plan will be accomplished. What a great thing then for us to be engaged in it, knowing that we are, so to speak, on the winning team. The outcome is sure and certain altogether. Every ounce of energy you expend, every dollar you give, Every sacrifice, every investment you make today in world missions will bear manifold returns. Better than any stock or bond. Which brings me to the third and final question. How is it accomplished? How is the gospel spread through the nations? Brace yourself for the answer. It is spread through through suffering. It is spread through suffering. Suffering was not a mere adjunct to Patrick's ministry in Ireland, nor was it simply the result of it. Suffering was the means that God used to cause His gospel to go so powerfully over the hearts and countryside of Ireland. When the people saw Patrick willing to undergo beatings 
and tauntings. When he preached to them with a face blackened by the beatings that he had received that week. Willing to go hungry. Willing to risk life and limb and return even to slavery if need be for their sakes and for the gospel. That was the living testimony of the gospel that brought them to Christ. Not unlike the power of the gospel that, that was unleashed, that transformed the Alca Indians in Ecuador, the power that was unleashed the day that the blood of five missionaries mingled with the waters of the Curare River. Where the gospel has gone with the greatest power and the kingdom has most mightily advanced. It has been on the bloodied backs of men and women who recognized that suffering was not merely the result, but the means of their ministry. Somehow, the message of Christ's sacrifice is best understood when it is not merely spoken but lived. Surely this is something of what Paul meant when he wrote to the Colossians, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. I was not, of course, in that striking phrase, it was not that Paul was saying that Christ's afflictions were not enough to satisfy for their sins. But what Paul's afflictions were accomplishing, what his missionary sufferings did, was to provide a visible demonstration of the love of Christ for those to whom the gospel had to come. Joseph Tsan, the Roman, a Romanian pastor who risked his life teaching and preaching under the communists until he was exiled in 1981, puts it this way in his book, Suffering, Martyrdom, and Rewards in Heaven. Quote, Suffering and martyrdom have to be seen as part of God's plan. They are his instruments by which he achieves his purposes in history and by which he will accomplish his final purposes with man. Listen to some of the things Jesus had to say about all of this. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. Or this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And some of you they will put to death, Jesus said. You will be hated for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. Brothers and sisters, suffering is simply part of the Christian package, of the genuine Christian package, and of the missions package, particularly. What a glorious package it is. And I tell you, no one in glory today 
regrets one single sacrifice. Instead, they say, like David Livingston, missionary to Africa, in his famous speech to the students at Cambridge University in 1857, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. Now I know that what I am preaching to you is radical. That's the nature of the gospel. That's the nature of the Christian life. It is radical. And it is wonderful. There is no privilege. There is no duty so great, save, of course, for worship itself, as bearing the gospel to the nations. And now God is calling you, every single one of you, in the hearing of my voice. He is calling you. And he is calling this congregation together. There are three choices you have when it comes to world missions. You have three choices. You may be a goer. You may be a sender. Or you may be disobedient. I think you'll agree with me that the last is no option at all. But whether you are a sender or a goer, and may the Lord raise up goers from our midst. Perhaps he is calling one of you this very morning to lay down your life and enter into world missions. I say whether you are a sender or a goer, these things are certain. World missions will rise from hearts inflamed for the worldwide glory and preeminence of Christ. It will stand on your unshakable confidence in God's promise to accomplish just those things as he has said it. And you will be an effective goer or sender in direct proportion to your willingness to suffer and to sacrifice in some way for this cause, whether on the field or right here at home. Give of your sons to bear the message glorious. Give of your wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out your soul in prayer for them victorious and all your spending. Jesus will repay. Amen.